Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Uh, yes, give me a second. I got to get situated here. I have a few props. Don't get too excited. Don't get too excited. Well, I have met most of you, but if I have not, my name is Zach Hay. Hello, and I am on the pastoral staff team here with Chi Alpha. Uh, if, you, if this is your first time tonight, we're really glad that you're here. I hope that this is a place where you can call home and really feel welcome. Uh, and I just want to say thank you to all of you guys for being here. You are the faithful few, am I right? Yes, who are here on your holiday week. And I I am very grateful that you are here because I do think that God has something special for us tonight. Uh, Even before this service, uh, Savannah prayed that this would be a moment where we can just leave here feeling full, that this would feel like a a family meal together. And I just, I I, I hope that that is a reality for us tonight too. Uh, And speaking of meals, we all know what Thursday is, right? What is it? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving is a very important holiday in my house, especially to my dad, who uh, to him it's the greatest holiday ever created. As in, in his own words, uh, I get a day off from work, I get to eat as much as I want, and I get to watch football all day. What better day can you think of? Now, to be honest with you, uh, I'm not the biggest football fan, even though Christopher Cole is really doing his best to help me uh, learn uh, since I've been living with him. But I am a foodie, okay? A little bit of a foodie. I like some good food, right? And any, any foodies out there? All right, I see you, I see you. Now, I think Thanksgiving kind of brings out two types of people in the world, okay? The first type of people, they plate their food like this at Thanksgiving. Okay, nothing ever touches. The, 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 the mashed potatoes are separate from the turkey. The turkey is separate from the sweet potatoes. And the cranberry sauce is hopefully in a bowl all to itself. Who, who, who does this? Raise your hands, don't be shy, come on. All right, all right. Now there's the other type of people in the world who look like this. You're monsters! Monsters! So we, th- this, this is just a mess, a conglomeration of everything. And the turkey is just poured all over everything. There's no distinguishing. All right, who's that? Who's that? Okay, all right. Why do I say this? Why do I bring this up? I think that both of these plates represent, they're kind of metaphors for two ways that we can organize our lives, okay? The first way I'm gonna call a compartmentalized life. Everything has its place, rarely do things interact. I have my, my friends over here, I have my family over here. I have my, my dating life over here. And every once in a while, maybe I'll take a little bit of my career and dip it in Jesus. Or I'll take a little bit of Jesus and I'll pour him all over my dating life. But for the most part, Jesus stays in his lane, okay? This lane we like to call our spiritual lives. Oh, I'm working on my spiritual life, right? 
People who live a compartmentalized life will say things like, my spiritual life is over here, but my academic life is over here. Or, these are my Chi Alpha friends, and these are my Hall friends. I have my career over here, and my ministry over here. Okay, let's all be honest. Most of us, including myself, at times live some sort of compartmentalized life, right? We, we have our different categories, and it can be uncomfortable when they start to mix. And while there is grace here, and we're all on a journey, that is not the life that Jesus called us to live. Jesus has called us to live lives that are integrated with him. His desire is for us to integrate him into every area of our lives. He wants us to pour him over our careers, allow him to define our identities, and bring transformation into our relationships. Back when I was in college, which was not that long ago, <laughs> for some of you first years who think I'm in my 30s, oh. Back when I was in college, I, was, I just kind of came face to face with my compartmentalized life. I, I, I w it was my last semester at American University. I was writing my capstone. I was working in Congress. I was trying to lead a core group. I was trying to maintain my friendships. And it was overwhelming and exhausting. I remember just getting to a point where I just felt so burned out. And so I went to my staff mentor, Blaine Young, you met him at Fall Retreat, and I said to him, I was like, Blaine, I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm just, my whole life is this juggling act, and I just have all these balls up in the air, and all I can do, it's taking everything I have just to keep them in the air. And I remember I looked Blaine in the eye, and I said, Blaine, I just need to learn how to live a more balanced life. And he looked at me in his classic, kind, but convicting way <laughs> and said, Zach, Jesus never called you to live a balanced life. He asked you to prioritize him above everything else and trust him with the rest. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus does not call us to a compartmentalized life, rather to integrated ones. This semester we've been going through the book of Mark in a series called The Crown and the Cross. And this, it, we're kind of walking through this book and there's two halves of the book. The first half of Mark is where Mark is detailing to us that Jesus is a new type of king ushering in a new type of kingdom, right? And now we're in the second half of the book, and we see this way, we're learning the way in which Jesus is inaugurating this kingdom, and it's through the cross. And tonight, we're going to be reading a story about a man who is struggling with a compartmentalized life and is faced with the most important decision he will ever make. Unlike many stories in the gospel, this is not a parable. This isn't just some story, some illustration that Jesus made up to teach us something. This is a, a real encounter between Jesus and a real person that we're about to peer into. 
And, and it's because of this that I think this is one of the most tragic stories in the New Testament. And yet it has some of the most important teachings for us in understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus and enter into the kingdom of God. So will you turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. So verse 17 says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, because he had great wealth. So here Jesus is, setting out on this journey towards Jerusalem, and in the chapters before, Jesus predicts his own death, so he knows that what awaits him in Jerusalem is the cross. And so as Jesus sets his journey towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, this man runs up to him and stops him along the way. Now, what can we learn about this man? First, if you look at verse 22, we learn that he's rich because he had great wealth. Now, there's other things we can learn about this man that this story is told in each of the synoptic gospels. So it's in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And in Matthew, we learn that he is not only rich, but he's also young. And then in Luke, we learn that he is a ruler. Now, we're not really sure what Luke meant by ruler, but we can deduce that he was a man of influence in his community. An influencer, if you will. <laughs> so this man, who appears to be at the top of his social food chain, approaches Jesus. But he doesn't just approach him. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he calls him good teacher. Now, why is that significant? First, in this culture that we're dealing with, a man of that status, it would have been very rare, very uncomfortable to see a man of that status be on his knees in front of a man like Jesus. It would have been confusing to people to see that. And second, he calls him good teacher, which is this, this little phrase that we don't, it doesn't carry as much in English, but if you understand that in, in the Hebrew, in all of Jewish literature, that phrase was only used to refer to God. Now, I don't know if the young man was trying to make a theological statement, but what we can see by his posture of humility and reverence is that he understood Jesus to be someone of significance. Last week, Pete talked to us about C.S. Lewis's idea of inner rings, that, that in life we're just striving to get into the inner ring only to find out that there's more inner rings. Well, this man is in the inner ring of inner rings. He is more than comfortable. He has his whole life ahead of him, and he is a person of great influence. He has everything going for him, and yet... He throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Why? 
I believe it's because he knows that despite all his wealth and his power, there's still something missing. I think this speaks to a pattern that we often see in life. There's these people who we look up to that we think have made it in life, right? That they just have everything we could ever dream of, and yet they are miserable and unsatisfied. Years ago, there was a famous tennis player named Boris Becker, and he said this, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player. I was rich, I had all the material possessions I needed, and yet I had no inner peace. He thought that all the money, all of his accomplishments, all, his, all of the fame would satisfy him, and yet he found out, like so many others, that it cannot fill him. Any of you remember Anthony Bourdain, this famous TV star, cook, world traveler, famous and filthy rich? Took his own life. And shortly before he died, he wrote this to a close friend. I hate my fans, I hate being famous, and I hate my job. I am lonely, and I am living in constant uncertainty. And this isn't just for people with money and fame, it's about pleasure too. Think of Oscar Wilde, the, the quintessential man of hedonism and, and pleasure in the 18th century. Someone that has been heralded as one of the pioneers of what we now think of as the sexual revolution. Before he died, he repented of it all. On his deathbed, he was so tormented by his past that the one thing he asked for was a priest to come and baptize him. He realized that every attempt he had ever made to fill that hole inside of him for significance and connection had failed. Nothing seemed to satisfy. You see, the world, particularly our materialistic and pleasure-focused world, often offers promises that it cannot keep. And I would argue that that is where this man is. He has everything he could ask for. And yet he's recognizing that it's not enough. And in that search for fulfillment, he does the wisest thing he may ever do in his life. Not only does he recognize that need within him, but he identifies Jesus as the one who can meet that need. So often, I, I know plenty of people who can identify that need inside of them, that something is missing, but very rarely do people recognize that Jesus is the one who holds the answer to that longing. So here this man is, he's standing before Jesus, the one who can satisfy the depths of his searching soul, and he asks a simple question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The problem is, it's just slightly the wrong question. In this simple phrase, the young man reveals something about his heart and his life that's revealing. He, his question for Jesus is, what must I do? This phrase, as a commentator I read, William Lane, he says, this man is suffering from a piety of achievement. It means that this man's desire to do good and to live righteously is inherently tied up in his ability to achieve. 
And so Jesus meets him in this. He brings him to the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Commit adultery. So on. And the man responds responds confidently, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now here in our Protestant culture, we want to stop him. No, 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 no. No one can fulfill the law. But that's not what Jesus does. Actually, Jesus doesn't correct him at all. He seems to implicitly agree with him that this man has, in fact, kept these commandments. He hasn't murdered. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't stolen. Check, check, check. And what is remarkable is that this man has probably spent his entire life trying to keep the commandments and live a righteous life. So not only is this man rich, young, influential, he is also pretty morally good. And yet, despite him answering confidently, the fact that he stands before Jesus and is asking this question reveals a deep insecurity within him. Even though he has lived the best life that he knows how, he still knows that something is missing. No matter how many boxes he checks off, it doesn't feel like enough. How many of you have been there? You read your Bible, you go to MNL, you love your housemates, you invite your classmates to core group, and yet you still feel distance from God. In your pursuit of righteousness, you have lost your delight in God and feel that you lack his approval. Is that anybody? Your spiritual life feels like a burden. That is where this man is. And it's in this moment that it says Jesus looked at him. And I believe it's this picture of Jesus seeing into this man's soul, seeing the turmoil of him trying harder. And it says Jesus loves him. That is a beautiful phrase that Mark throws in there. Jesus loves him in the midst of seeing this man trying so hard. Jesus loves him. And I believe that Jesus is so moved by compassion for this man and that he desperately wants to free him from the tyranny of trying harder. So he responds with something so gracious. He says, there's one thing that you lack, one thing keeping you. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus goes right to the heart Let go of this and you will be free. It's like this jar. The rich young ruler has held on to his wealth. His identity is in his wealth. And as long as he holds on to that, he cannot be free. And Jesus just says, let that go and experience life to the full. And then Jesus does something incredible. He doesn't stop there. He still, the sentence keeps going. Look at what he offers the man. Do this and then what? Come follow me. This may look simple, but it's profound. That phrase, come follow me, is only used 13 times in the Gospels. 12 of them, you'd think one for each, but not. 
12 of them were when Jesus was calling the disciples to follow him. This is the only instance where Jesus looks at an individual that does not become a disciple and says, come follow me. I am convinced that if this man had said yes, Jesus would have welcomed him as a 13th disciple on his way to Jerusalem. But the cost is high. Jesus knows that this path leads to the cross and that anything but utter devotion and trust will not be enough. And so he calls the man to let go of the one thing that keeps him from that. And what happens next is tragic. This man drops his head and walks away because he had great wealth. He couldn't let go of the ball. He chooses to remain stuck. And it's in this moment that he reveals his compartmentalized life. He's got his money over here and his power over here and his influence over here and he was just hoping to tack Jesus on to the end of that. If only he could check one more box, be secure in his eternity and then he would be satisfied. But that is not what Jesus came to offer. Instead, Jesus offers an invitation to a journey of complete life transformation. A life with him fully integrated into every part, including the ones that we hold most dear. True followers of Jesus are characterized by self-sacrificing devotion. And that is what this man lacks. The man counts this cost and he deems it too high. He chooses his wealth and worldly significance over the greatest privilege offered to mankind. And he walks away. I believe this broke Jesus' heart. I truly do. And I think it continues to break his heart each time we make that same decision. There is a tragedy in walking away. Let's keep reading in verses 23 through 28. 23 says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are impossible with God. And then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. At this moment, Jesus turns the disciples' expectations on their head. As that man is walking away, he uses it as an opportunity to teach you see, for the disciples and in Jewish culture, wealth was the greatest sign of God's favor. And for Jesus to say that that man's wealth was the thing that was keeping him from entering the kingdom of God was a radical shift in their worldview. But it speaks to the heart of what Jesus is trying to teach them and us. 
Now, there's a few interesting things I want to point out about what Jesus says here. First, look at how many times he says the phrase, enter the kingdom of God. Three times, enter the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God. But what's interesting, if you go back to verse 17, that's not what the young man asked. He said, what must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. But Jesus turns it around and talks about the kingdom of God. Sometimes in our Protestant worldview, we can get so focused on getting our ticket into heaven that we forget that Jesus came to usher in a new kingdom now. And that his kingdom is not just about eternal life, but also the radical transformation of lives in this life. You see, compartmentalization causes us to think of the kingdom of God as something in the future, that our spiritual lives are just insurance that one day we will enter paradise. But Jesus is calling us to live right here, right now. The way we live matters. <laughs> Another interesting thing is how Jesus handles the idea of riches. There is, Jesus is clearly trying to teach us something about riches. <laughs> and I believe it's that Wealth is a primary distraction from a life of devotion. That the more material riches we have, the more temptation we face to trust in those our own resources and our own power over surrender and dependence on Jesus. But look at verse 24. Jesus says, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of heaven? Look at what's not there. He doesn't mention the rich. And so while Jesus is giving this teaching on wealth, he's also broadening it. <laughs> Jesus is teaching us that we have to let go of anything that, keeps, that stands between us and wholehearted devotion. This is a message for all of us, regardless of our bank accounts. <laughs> I'm also struck by Jesus' realism. Realism. He is very clear that life in the kingdom of God is hard. That self-sacrificing devotion is not easy. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus takes the biggest animal that the Jewish mind would have known and compares it to the smallest entry that they could think of. And Peter's response is correct. It's impossible. Who then can be saved? But then Jesus reminds his disciples that following him is one of complete dependence. Only God is capable of tra the transforming work required to turn us into citizens of heaven. And there is hope because he is able. He is able. There is hope that we do not need to do this on our own strength. Lastly, look at what Peter says at the end there. We have left everything to follow you. I can almost hear this hinge of hubris in his voice. It's almost as like he's saying, but look at us. We've given up everything. And Jesus graciously reminds him as well that it's not about what you do. <laughs> Don't let your act of sacrifice lead you back to self-righteousness. 
Your act of opening your hands and giving up everything is merely the starting line in the journey of transformation. The law and the life that God calls us to live is meant to bring our satisfaction with this world and its empty promises to an end and replace it with a hunger and a thirst for the gift of righteousness that comes from God alone. Only in that can we experience true freedom. And that's ultimately what tonight is about, is what is true freedom? How do we get free in order to participate in discipleship? Now, I want to be honest, all this talk of self-sacrifice is probably a little overwhelming, (laughs) It can feel a little bleak. But the very next verse, Jesus reminds us that there is hope and beauty in it. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. A life of wholehearted devotion to Jesus is hard, but it is not without blessing. Jesus promises the things that we turn away from are nothing compared to the things that he hands us in return. Not only in the life to come, but in this present age, now. There is beauty, community, significance available to us right now. Amen? It may not always look like we dreamed, but it is just, if not more, meaningful. Again, Jesus is a realist, and he makes sure to throw in that little sentence, along with persecutions. (laughs) As long as we seek to live set apart from the world, we will face headwinds. It will not always be easy, but with God, it is possible, and it is worth it. The phrase 100 times as much speaks less about the quantity, but rather the quality. Whatever we release in this life, apart from God, it is of no lasting value. But the things that he hands us in return are of eternal significance. Something that strikes me about this passage is that the young man at the beginning walks away from Jesus because he is unwilling to give up his wealth, his power, and his influence. And yet here we are 2,000 years later and we don't even know his name. The very thing that he held so tightly to faded away. It's now dust. The only record we have that he ever lived is a telling of his greatest mistake. But do you know whose names we do know? We know Peter, James, and John, three insignificant fishermen from the backwaters of Galilee who said yes. We know Matthew's name, a tax collector who was rejected by his people and gave up great wealth to follow Jesus. We know Thomas, a man of many doubts and many fears, and yet he chose obedience. Effect. There are, we know the names of many men and women 
who are seemingly insignificant but gave up everything and lived messy lives of obedience to Jesus. Men and women who through their sacrifice gained power and influence beyond anything they could have ever imagined. They, through the power of the Holy Spirit, pioneered the most influential movement in human history. I bet that if the young man knew that, he may have made a different choice. I had one of these moments when I was deciding to move here to Charlottesville to do the Chi Alpha internship. I had received a calling to ministry years before, but I was about to graduate and I needed to take that step of obedience. And I remember sitting in my tiny little one-bedroom apartment in D.C. and I started to count the cost. I would be giving up law school. I would be giving up my job in Congress, a position that gave me status, that pleased my parents, and impressed my friends. I was giving up a career where I wouldn't have to beg people for money every summer. I would have had a salary. But I decided to let those things go and move here. And to be honest with you, I would be lying if I said there weren't days I wished I'd made a different choice, that I wished I could go back and have those things, when I didn't have to support Ray's or my friends back at home didn't think I was wasting my life. But then there's other days, days like fall retreat when I stand in the back of that room and I see 300 of you with your hands raised in worship, encountering the Spirit of God as he transforms your life like he transformed mine. There are days like Sikkim when I've stood in the Atlantic Ocean and baptized men who I've seen walk long arcs of obedience to Jesus. There are days when I sit in one-on-ones with some of you and I watch as the tears fall from your eyes as Jesus sets you free from addictions as he reminds you that, he, that you are his beloved. It is in those moments that I remember that there is nothing worth more, nothing worth more than seeing these hands build the eternal kingdom of God. Nothing. As I close, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. But as they do, I just have one simple question for you. What are you holding on to? I believe each of us have moments in our lives when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something that until that moment we haven't been willing to give up. When I have these moments, I can feel it in my chest. I can feel the Spirit just putting his finger, let this go. I'd love for you to close your eyes. What is that thing for you? It'll be different for everyone here. Don't try to compare to other people. What, would you just have the courage to ask the Spirit, what is that one thing? Sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by all the things we think it might be, but all I'm asking you is can we ask the Spirit, what is the one thing you are asking of me in this moment? Will you have the courage not only to ask the question, but open your ears to hear the answer? For some of you, it is actually wealth. You come from a background where you have had money. 
You know the security that it brings and you can't imagine a life without it. I want to be clear, money and security are not sinful. But when they come between you and wholehearted devotion, they will deform you. Without even knowing it, your pursuit of security and money has led you to compartmentalize your life. If I'm going to maintain the security, I need to get a good paying job. In order to do that, I have to get into UVA. I have to get good grades, have the right internship, make the right connections. And each of these becomes this box in my life. And as they grow, Jesus' box grows smaller and smaller and smaller. There's a similar danger for those of you who didn't come from money. You came from nothing. And you crave the security that money brings. You're not looking to be the 1%. You just want to be comfortable. You've bought into the promise of the American dream that if you study hard, get the right education, go to the right school, get the right internship, marry the right person, then you will be satisfied. But before you know it, you will have a bunch of checked boxes and an empty soul. For those of you, some of you, it's not about money. It's about status. If I could just go to the right grad school and get those letters after my name, then I will know I'm enough. For still others of you, it's not about money or status. It's about pleasure. It's about sex. You crave the connection and intimacy and the bounds that God has put on our sexuality feel too restrictive. The cost feels too high. But tonight I urge you to consider that there is no cost greater than missing Jesus' call to follow him. There is nothing more tragic than walking away from building, from the privilege of building the eternal kingdom of God. Nothing we do apart from God's kingdom will last. It is dust. It will all fade and be forgotten in the moment when time ends. Friends, I beg you, do not throw away your life and your legacy for dust. Here's my hope for you. That whatever God is stirring in you right now, whatever the Holy Spirit has put his finger on, I pray that you would have the courage to let it go. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but that God would empower you by his spirit to open your hand. That you will come to these altars and release it. And then years from now, 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, I will get a phone call from you and you will simply say, Zach, it was worth it. And then I will know that the decision I made all those years ago that I still live out today was also worth it. Simply because a life of true freedom, of eternal significance, and unity with Christ comes only from wholehearted, self-sacrificing devotion to Jesus. Let me pray. God, I pray for each student in this room. God, I pray that your spirit would speak with clarity to each of them as they open their hearts to hear what you are asking of them, God. I pray that they wouldn't enter into this with fear, but instead with trust, Lord, that you love them beyond anything they could ever imagine and have plans and purposes for their life 
that can change the world. And Lord, I, I, I pray that as we step into worship, God, your spirit would be tangible in this place, that we would leave here encouraged, that we would carry this back home with us, that there would be a lightness that comes with the freedom from the tyranny of trying harder. Lord, would you bless them? Amen. Let's worship together. God, I pray that the idea of giving ourselves away would not bring fear, but would bring anticipation of the joy and eternal significance you can infuse into our lives. And now for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance toward you. And may he give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We will see you guys at the Hub after this and enjoy your holiday. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.